episode 275, COVID-19, Will Self-Insured Employer Costs Ultimately Go Up? The Why and How to Protect Your Company from Predatory Healthcare Pricing. Today, I talk with Brian Scott from Point Six Healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I have the same burning question that I think many of you have. If I am a self-funded employer, as a result of this pandemic, will my healthcare costs go up? This question boils down to an equation that has two parts, the additions and then the subtractions. In the additions column, How much will an employer spend on COVID-19 treatments, you know, both the ICU visits, but also employees who haven't been to the doctor in 15 years, get a cough, go to the doctor, and get diagnosed with some underlying condition, maybe after a lot of lab work and a few CT scans, and potentially winds up, for example, on some expensive therapy. Back to our equation. In the subtractions column, we have, you know, shelter in place, whether by mandate or fear-based. Everyone who is foregoing or has forewent elective surgery or follow-up visits or anything else in a fee-for-service world results in, you know, less costs for an employer. Doctor visits are down 35 to 80 percent, depending on the specialty. And, you know, nothing for nothing, but healthcare industry revenue is an employer's cost. If we disregard payer mix for a sec, this could mean that employer costs are down the same percentage as any given doctor's revenue. Today, I talk with Brian Scott. Brian has a background, which is perfect for the question of, will employer healthcare costs go up or down? (laughs) First, he was an underwriter at United. Then he was in a dedicated complex claims group for Lockton that managed self-funded plans. And now he's at Point Six Healthcare, where he works to put together, you know, best value plans for employers, including getting stop loss. Brian works with TPAs across the country to this end. So this conversation with Brian has two parts. This first episode, episode 275, is mostly about the specific additions used in a lot of the cost models that are being floated relative to whether costs will go up or down for self-funded employers, and also what some self-insured employers are doing or considering to address the underlying risk factors that might drive up costs in a plan and help reduce them. Episode 276, which is the next one after this one, includes Brian's advice for self-insured employers, as well as a look into the fully insured market. We explore why estimates in the fully insured market show that costs could go up anywhere from 4 to 40% when premiums are re-upped. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Brian Scott, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you very much, Stacey. All right, let's talk about this pandemic. How are you calculating or thinking about or contemplating the additional costs that an average employer might incur relative to employees and COVID? That's a great question, Stacey. We are taking inputs from all kinds of different sources, and that includes carriers, both stop-loss carriers and fully insured carriers, from the consulting firms, 
we've heard from actuaries and of course watching the press and it seems that there is always one constant that is going on right now and that constant is change there's guidance that changes just a little bit from week to week and then it seems like there's guidance that changes a lot and a lot of it has to do with how many employees are still going to be covered by employee benefit plans how old are the people within a population what's the geography what's the industry and as we look through all the different areas one of the trends that's developed is people want to interact differently with the healthcare system moving forward than they have in the past some of those ways will change the places that are utilized to provide care some of those changes will impact whether a doctor is able to bill for an interaction with a patient or not some of those changes will involve new drugs drugs that are changed a different way of getting drugs maybe not even a pbm there are going to be a lot of these changes that endure and might have additional costs associated with them other changes especially one of the most obvious ones the reduction of use of hospitals overall probably will also endure so you're going to have some cost reductions off of that let me dig in here because you said a lot that i have a great interest in knowing more about ryan so i think relative to the how old are your employees how many employees do you have what geography and is it an essential business where everybody's in the factory floor all crammed together or is it more of a everybody's in their own offices and probably could easily work from home i mean all of those things obviously are going to require their own calculus for each individual employer to determine but then you got into some stuff that's a little bit i'm going to say less intuitive you said given covid there might be different settings of care which i'm assuming is interrelated with a reduction of the use of hospitals and then you said that you think that this is going to actually endure after the you know post pandemic part of the discussion that i've seen there was a jama article last week and some other inputs from the media that basically indicated there's an expectation that people are going to demand that care be delivered in settings where there are fewer people around and that might be outpatient facilities it might be using nursing homes that have extra space or capacity that right now nobody wants to go into a nursing home most people aren't allowed to go into a nursing home but that might be a setting of care moving forward like you said it's not necessarily intuitive a lot of services could be delivered in people's homes a lot more home visits probably the biggest thing that's going to be delivered in people's homes is some version of telemedicine but not necessarily using the teledoc model that a lot of other companies including teledoc offer but the ability to either form a new relationship or continue an existing relationship with a physician but in a virtual setting and so a big focus for employers should be finding ways in partnership with the vendors and the administrators that they're working with to create space for that provider time with the member in the virtual environment that is not transactional and that maintains or enforces a relationship 
adding in population health focused services that go beyond just the treatment of, of illness. And ultimately, those relationships can be surrounded by the ancillary services that are delivered, whether it's, I need a test, I need a lab, I need an image taken. Those services can be directed on a piece-by-piece basis to the highest value of service location for that member. And what that means is you don't have a doctor in a hospital meeting a patient and then sending them down the hallway to get the labs and imaging because it's convenient. It means you have an opportunity to design the pathways to that extra care that does need to occur in person in some way, shape, or form so that it's a quick, high-value interaction that actually, in many cases, will cost less now if the plan is designed to support that steerage. Telehealth might be the fulcrum of this whole thing or, or the thing that everybody likes to consider the centerpiece, but it's actually a business model change at the end of the day because you've got patients who are now at home, they're not in clinic, and we need to make sure that we're designing care around that location <laughs> as opposed to around the office. So if someone needs a lab, you know, I was talking to Jonathan Thierman the other day from LifeBridge Health, and he's talking about they're going to set up the SUV that drives around and does lab tests so that if a doctor orders a lab test, the SOV shows up an hour later and, and does the lab test. I could see that from a provider organization standpoint, there's good news and bad news there. I mean, the good news is there's actually a competitive differentiation with like Teladoc. You know, people were using Teladoc because they wanted to get care in their home. But as you said, it's very transactional. The talk to a doctor who has no idea who you are, probably once. But if the local provider organization, you know, the doctor that you've been seeing for years is now using telehealth, it opens up another avenue to deepen the relationship. Because as many have said, now maybe the patient will have three visits a year instead of one because it, the barrier to access is, is actually lower. You know, so maybe that's good for local provider organizations. On the other hand, the patient's not in clinic. So if the doctor says, hey, go down the hall and get an MRI, the patient is now in their home and is thinking, mm, maybe I should check around and see how much that costs because I'm going to have to drive no matter where I go. Yeah, absolutely. I would not be surprised if you see imaging centers that deploy those vans, just like what you just mentioned with the mobile lab. So there's definitely opportunities for first movers or for early movers who can spot at this exact moment in time that we're experiencing a, a shift. And this might also, you had mentioned different ways to get drugs. And I could also see that same model happening with infused products. You know, like normally a patient would have to go to the hospital or, or some clinic to get an infusion. Is that also what you're referring to relative to different ways to get drugs or what were you thinking? Yes, that's exactly a large service that already has some infrastructure built up in order to deliver services in, in the home. But one thing you might see is that the owners of the provider systems develop a way to send a clinician into the home in order to actually complete the infusion with the member that they're treating and with the patient that they're treating and then bill for it through their traditional system. And I think in some cases, depending on how you have your financing and your health plan set up, 
they might be successful in doing that. And so it might be at a higher cost since care delivered in a hospital setting typically is a higher cost care. And if it's that same provider system doing the billing, they might be able to access that same higher cost contract. So making sure that you have some level of visibility into whether that service is being provided under the pharmacy benefit and then just the infusion service itself is being paid for under the medical benefit or whether it's being billed as a bundled product. Those are all important considerations for managing the cost of that care that's delivered. It can be the exact same care, might even be the exact same clinician delivering the care, but it might be at a very different cost depending on how you have it structured under the plan. Got it. And and so now we're talking about employers, the impact that this is going to have on employers' bottom line, which is obviously the core construct of this conversation. And the equation that we're looking at here relative to will COVID net cost more or will it cost less? There's things in the plus column, but then there's things in the subtraction column too. So, you know, if we're thinking about how somebody gets their drug infused, what I'm understanding you saying is that, you know, it's obviously, it's really expensive in a hospital to get drugs infused. It often flies under the radar because while pharmacy benefits managed under the pharmacy arm of any given employer's formulary are managed in a lot of cases. Like there's a distinct formulary and we can get into that in a sec because I just, there's a lot of wrinkles in what I just said. Absolutely. But one area that's, let's just say far less attention has been placed on it is infused products in a hospital because the provider can buy whatever drug they they want and then they tend to bill it back and the employers tend to not quite realize what's happened until maybe they already got the bill. Yeah, there are several implications here and where there's a perception that there could be illness lurking and I might get it simply because I showed up and maybe I should just figure out a way to not be there. Ideally, we'll find pathways pretty quickly to get those people who have some aversion to care on that premise to still seek care in some other way and to give them tools to be able to do so. Since the aversion to care in facilities will likely endure in a meaningful portion of the population, some of that avoided care actually won't come back. Some will, but some won't. If you have a surgery planned intended to relieve pain, it may result in the appearance of increased costs to be avoiding care because you might get on some pain medication regimen. You might get into some therapy that a lot of people might skip past that therapy section in order to get the surgical intervention in normal circumstances or in what we previously considered to be normal circumstances. But they might really be forced by their own aversion to being in a facility moving forward to try those things that are lower cost and potentially effective and ultimately avoid the care that might have been delivered previously. Yeah, I mean, 50% of back surgeries, they say, are unnecessary and resolved by themselves. So if somebody waits long enough, you'd assume that back surgeries might just go down by some meaningful percentage, for example, as just the one everybody thinks of first, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so you said something else, which I'm not quite sure I understand how the dots connect. You said that there might be, so this again is connected to the getting drugs in a new way. You said maybe without a PBM. What do you mean by that? Well, there are a few different models that we've seen where oftentimes there is some form of an advocacy and sourcing service that is not a PBM that can be utilized by an employer plan. 
Sometimes a PBM will offer some kind of advocacy service alongside it, but there are many programs that plans can direct their members towards to get their drugs in a different way. So a lot of us have heard of cities or counties or even state governments contracting with Canadian pharmacies, for example, to go and have brand drugs delivered at a lower cost. Depending on whether an employer feels like that's something that they can offer, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to give any legal advice here, but that is something that some plan sponsors feel could be an impactful savings measure. And that's just one example among several, but having an advocate for the member to help identify both the options that are available under the plan and alternative options where the employer might be involved in helping procure the drug, but not actually paying for it through the PBM, there are a growing number of services in that area. And this might be prompted by the pandemic simply because, maybe because of COVID and the expectation that costs are going to rise, but also because recession. And as if revenues go down, then increasingly CFOs are going to be under a pinch to try to inspect every line item and see if there's any cost savings that can be garnered there. Absolutely. And if you use your existing set of vendors, if you look purely to your PBM for a solution, their solution might be change the formulary, negotiate better discounts and guarantees. We do try to work with our TPAs and clients to identify whether or not instead of reducing the services that are delivered to the covered members, instead of trying to pass on more cost share to the members, you might be able to find ways to reduce cost for the member for how much they have to pay out of pocket, which a lot of people in their households are feeling a big squeeze right now. So that's really important. And for the business itself to save dollars that might be available outside of their traditional set of vendors and partners. And that's what you mean by finding advocacy solutions. You know, some of these, especially the specialty products, they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if there's, you know, some sort of co-insurance deal where the the patient pays even a small percentage of a huge number. It's a lot of money. So, you know, a lot of the advocacy organizations work in a needs-based way so that if the employee does not have a super high salary, they, despite the fact that they're employed, they still might have the ability to get some advocacy dollars that were donated Yeah, absolutely. That is one avenue that exists. There are also a lot of avenues for assistance, even with prior authorizations, looking at what specialty product got prescribed versus what is an evidence-based way to assess what the condition actually is, whether there's a second opinion involved, whether there's a review of the medical records involved that might lead to a different conclusion as to what a treatment plan might look like. I've heard that a lot of the bigger PBMs have a very high prior authorization rate. And there are times that employers can go outside and find a vendor to put a focus just on that one process that is involved in specialty drugs. And it can change that prior authorization rate without negatively impacting patient outcomes. And of course, that's a really important aspect of all of this, as well as keeping that member's health and well-being top of mind, but finding avenues to identify alternatives. Yeah, I did a podcast about that exact topic with Ron Wintz from MindShift, actually, about the pros and cons of prior auth. Here's what I've heard. 
Brian, so let me, let me ask you whether this mirrors your experience. What I've heard is innovation in the employer space is kind of a barbell where you have the jumbos who are highly innovative and you have actually small employers who are very innovative, but you've got this middle market that's not innovative at all. And what they tend to be doing is using the BUCA plans, for lack of a better word, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, as their ASO, their administrative services only. And therefore, they're not necessarily, they historically haven't been too quick to adopt solutions outside of what their ASO recommends. And the ASO, i.e. the same entity as the insurance carrier departments in that plan, aren't recommending anything that could potentially cannibalize their core business. Have you seen the same? Yeah, I I think it's fair to say that there's a reason that the very large managed care organizations and insurers are able to attract all of the business that they're able to attract, but that finding ways to really dig into some of these individual concerns that we're talking about are not necessarily top of mind within those interactions. Making sure that members have access to care, making sure that you know there's been a huge focus on discounts off build charges for years and years and years and competing on that basis with the others. I believe there are times when some of those solutions that they came up with were really innovative and really met the met the moment in in a way that benefited a, a lot of people. And I think that finding ways to meet this moment and serve the needs that employers have right now is very important. Do you feel like given the pressures, the twin dynamics that we've got going on here of, of COVID and recession, which are a squeeze, that some of those employers who have been, let's just say, less inclined to do innovative things, they are going to be pushed into some of these solutions, which at this juncture are not new, but have the adoption curve has been slow at best. Absolutely. I've heard from a number of different sources as an HR manager, you're never going to put your job at risk by handing people a Blue Cross or United Healthcare medical card. There are a lot of reasons why you know, that is a big distribution channel and and a big access channel historically. But COVID presents a flashpoint of a change in consumer behavior, a change in employment security, a change in the interactions between HR and CFOs and the whole organization. With all of that change, going back to what I said at the beginning, change is such a defining thing in this moment. There is, I don't know if it's best to call it an opportunity, but there is this flashpoint that has occurred that means that changes in small ways, even if it's, I don't know if many would consider this to be a small way, taking a Buka card and replacing it with a non-Buka card, but making those changes appears like it would be able to be accepted in a different way than it would in a normal environment. 
Let's not let this crisis go to waste, in other words. Oh, boy. That's controversial, I think. <laughs> you think? <laughs> but let's meet the needs of the moment for sure. Yeah. If I'm thinking like an employer here, you know, there was just this Milliman report which came out last week, which you probably saw, that showed a dip in employer spend in the short term, but then kind of rising up in Q3 and Q4, not necessarily above baseline, but just, you know, there's no elective surgeries and whatnot now. And most employers are not experiencing a ton of COVID costs across the country, you know, unless you happen to be in the one of the hotspots, unfortunately for you. So the net net, said Milliman in, in 2020 anyway, is going to be a drop in healthcare costs in 2020. However, I was talking to John Harvey, for one, from Wincline, and he said that, generally speaking, employers should be not necessarily looking one year at a time. They should be looking out at least two years. So then the question becomes, what happens in 2021? You know, like net net, if we look across a longer time frame, how do costs do the pluses that we've talked about exceed the subtractions that we've talked about? How are you thinking about this? So the different models that I've heard discussed include a V-shape, a W-shape, and an L-shape. And there's no consensus, clearly. A lot of the carriers that we've been talking about, short of changing anything having to do with how the plan is run, they look at it at the likely cost expectation as either a V or a W, where the right-hand side is taller than the left-hand side. So I think reports like the Milliman report are helpful because they help to temper some of that wonder about just how tall that right-hand side of the letter is going to be. At the same time, the underwriting background, having been an underwriter in the past, I feel like I can talk to this at least a little bit, is to be somewhat conservative. So having someone to help both address the underlying risk factors that might drive costs up within a plan and help put in strategies to help reduce them, and then getting good contracting on that type of risk financing that you're purchasing, which for most employers in that middle market is stop loss, is important. And we know that there are going to be employers who say, this all feels too risky to me. I have to go back to being in a fully insured environment. And there will be other employers who say, I'm in a fully insured environment or I'm in an ASO environment with a BUCA on a self-funded basis, but I can't necessarily handle the costs that I'm dealing with. And I think that there are going to be solutions for those employers who have ramped up their marketing efforts in this moment in a way that, you know, there might honestly be too many options for a lot of these employers. So having a good partner to help sift through, you know, what are some good strategies that can make a meaningful impact for your plan and your members is very important right now. So when we say the right side of the curve, I mean, the right side of the letters, (laughs) the L, the V or the W, uh, basically, what you're meaning is ultimately prices, the cost of healthcare is going to go up. That's what the estimation is. Over what time frame, we're not sure, but ultimately, there will be an increase. Yes, that is how the carriers appear to be viewing it. To just to make the distinction. Well, and that's an important distinction because obviously the carriers have a lot of incentive 
to make that analysis. I would not necessarily call that unbiased. <laughs> right. <laughs> and furthermore, it's not like healthcare costs have been declining in any time period I can recall. You know, they've gone up. Certainly some evidence to back it up. Yep. Yeah, I would. I, I'm, I'm going to say it wouldn't take me too long to find that. So, you know, if we already have a steep upwards slope, I mean, maybe the trend line actually declines. It's not going up as much as it used to. How are you thinking about this? Well, I think I mentioned to you at one point, I have approximately half of an MBA and it was healthcare focused program. There were doctors and there were lawyers and there were nurses and there were insurance people and pharmacy representatives. And it was a great experience to get kind of a cross section of the industry. And one of the first things we did in this healthcare focused MBA program is talk about the cost of care in the US, the cost of care worldwide, and what sorts of things the healthcare system could do, whether you're talking about payers, providers, or consumer behavior in order to impact costs. And the conclusion really was costs have to come down. Something has to happen to get costs to come down. It's simply not sustainable to say that just because the trajectory has been what it has been for so long means that it can continue to be that into the future or that it, there aren't a lot of organizations that say that it should do that. There are certainly organizations out there that say it, whether internally or willing to say it externally, but having the actual cost of care come down is important for the sustainability of the system. This is a moment where getting that baseline cost of care to come down and stay down is an important goal for a lot of folks throughout the industry to have. If someone is interested in learning more about Point Six, where can they go for information? They can start on the website, point6healthcare.com. But I would welcome anybody to reach out to me directly, brian.scott at point6healthcare.com. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.